How many in here, by the raising of a hand, enjoy style? You enjoy clothing. You enjoy shopping for clothes. Raise your hand. All right. I see some of the men are like, is this okay? It's okay. I mean, you see the jacket I'm wearing today. I like style. I don't mind it. Um, A lot of guys just say, give me a couple pairs of pants and shoes and socks and at least three pairs of underwear and I'm good to go. And, uh, well, I'd be embarrassed to show you my closet, I guess. I like clothes. I like shopping for clothes and certainly like wearing clothes. Mark Twain, you might have heard of him, is quoted as saying this back in the day, clothes makes the man. Shakespeare said a little more eloquently when he said, the apparel oft proclaims the man. Both were making the point that in their day, oftentimes, what a man was wearing said a lot about him. In our world today, the kind of clothing we wear, well, it depends a lot on the role that we're fulfilling at the time. For instance, when you go to a wedding or you go to a funeral, maybe when you go to church, you're going to dress more formally. But when you go to a ball game, then you're going to dress more casually because your role depends the kind of clothing that you pick. The principle is also true in people's jobs. You take the soldiers of our United States military and and their uniforms are going to be consistent with their branch of the military. You'll never catch a Marine wearing a Navy outfit. Doctors and nurses usually wear scrubs. Prisoners, they even have costumes. I mean clothing, jumpsuits. All of these outfits are consistent with the role these people are currently fulfilling. But, but when our role changes, we usually change our apparel, usually change our dress. We leave the wedding and we change into more casual clothing. When a soldier leaves the army, he gets to take off the uniform and put what they call civvies on. A doctor usually takes off their scrubs at some point after work. And certainly a prisoner gets out of their jumpsuit, gets back into regular clothing. I mean, imagine if we heard that a prisoner was released after serving time in jail and then we saw him out in the town still wearing his orange jumpsuit. And it's not Halloween season. We'd scratch our head and think to ourselves, that's not right. He's been made free, but he's wearing clothes that represent somebody that is bound. Now, just as we understand this principle in daily clothing, so it is in the Christian life. It's inconsistent for a Christian to have been set free from sin, yet still live like they're bound to it. It's inconsistent for a Christian to have been made alive in Christ, yet live on the outside like they're dead in their sin. Hear me, church, when when, when we're saved, When we enter into a personal living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are given a new life. We are given a new identity. We are given a new purpose. And this new life, according to Scripture, comes with an expectation and an enablement by God to live a new lifestyle. Thus the title of the message today, A New Life, A New Lifestyle. The Apostle Paul was burdened that these believers in Ephesus had a lifestyle that was consistent with and conformed to their new life in Christ. Now, now I want you to get something right here at the get-go, right here at the beginning of the sermon, and it's this. You do not, 
attempt to live for Christ in order to gain new life in Christ. You've got to get this. You live for Christ because you have first been given new life in Christ. That's what the entire theme of the book of Ephesians is really about. And we cannot flip this upside down. You have to understand that a new lifestyle is the result of a new life. So, so from the get-go, let me encourage you this. You cannot try to live on the outside a life that is right with God if you haven't first been made right with God on the inside. It will be a temporary change because you have attempted to modify your behavior without letting God transform your heart. So here's the invitation from the get-go. Usually we wait till the last but I'm going to just jump right out of the gate with this invitation. You need to get saved if you're not saved today. How's that? From the get-go, if you know you're not in a relationship with Christ, then you need to, you need to wide out or, or make a line across that phrase, a new lifestyle, because you don't need to be worried about that right now. You need a new life. You need Christ to infuse his son and his spirit into your life or else you have no hope of living a new lifestyle. You will be miserable. You will be like people that go to the gym on January 1st with effort to turn over a new leaf. But by February the 1st, they're miserable because they really don't want to be that kind of person. I mean, they want the results of a person that goes to the gym. They just aren't that kind of person. Their identity is not somebody that is healthy and fit, so their behavior will not last long. Are you following me? So I don't want you to listen to this message if you're lost and say, that's what the Bible wants for me. I got to get my act together. No, 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 no. You got to get a new life first. And when you get saved, God will begin to help you get your act together. That's the very first step. The point that Paul's going to make in our text this morning is that the gospel doesn't stop there. It doesn't just change us on the inside. It starts there, but it makes a change on the outside as well. And in order to really make this case, Paul had to present this truth in two ways. He had to present the truth doctrinally or theologically. And that's how Paul worked most often. He wanted you to understand the foundation of this practice. He wanted to affect your mind before he affected your behavior. And so he's going to address it doctrinally, and so will I. And then he's going to use the backside of the text to address it practically. So let's begin with, with the doctrinal reasons for why a new life in Christ should result in a new lifestyle for Christ. Um, look at verse 17 through 19. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth... Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves under lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. What is Paul saying? He's saying this right, right at the front. If you're saved, you should be different or you should live a lifestyle different than that of those who aren't saved. The Bible calls those who aren't saved lost, unforgiven, unredeemed, not a part of the family of God. They are loved by God. But they have yet to place their faith in God. So they're not a child of God. And Paul put it this way, don't walk as other Gentiles walk. 
Now, he used this term Gentiles in a very general way. He wasn't talking about the people group here. He was talking about the people group in chapter 2. But in chapter 4, he's doing what Jesus often did when he taught his disciples. He's using Gentiles as a general term to refer to, refer to those who are not in Christ. They're lost. And, and did you notice the way Paul described their lifestyle? One of vanity. That means it was meaningless. One of darkness. One of alienation from God, one of ignorance, one of blindness, one of no self-constraint, one of greediness and uncleanliness. Now listen, that's not a good resume. That's not a good lifestyle. And obviously not every lost person that you know and I know match this depraved and wicked lifestyle. I've known lost people who are good people. Good employees, good friends, have a good marriage, have pretty good kids, so on and so forth. But Paul is speaking generally that the lost, though it might not be as depraved and as wicked as he mentions in these verses, the lost, their lifestyle simply is not, it's not good. And it's not consistently moral as compared to what the Bible expects. And so he's telling us, our lifestyle... Those who are saved, it should be different than those who are lost. Then he tells us in verse 20 and 21, we're still on the doctrinal reasons here. He tells us why. Look at verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. What is Paul saying? Here's why you have no excuse to live a lost lifestyle. Because you've been taught better. That's not how you learned of Christ. When you were taught about Jesus Christ, you learned that he would infuse within you new life. And with that comes a new lifestyle. Paul, Paul kind of sounds like a parent does after their child does something just absurdly foolish. Parents, have you ever looked at your child and said something like this? You know better than that. That's not how I raised you. That's not who you are. He's telling this church, he's telling us that to live an ungodly lifestyle would be to live in a way that violates what we've been taught by Christ himself. He goes on then to explain what Christ has taught us. At the moment of salvation through the Spirit of God, this is how you live a lifestyle different than what you lived before you came to Christ. Look at verse 22 through 24. That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So Paul gives us two ways that our lifestyle, as taught by Christ, can match our life. He said, first, you got to put off daily. you got to put off sin and put on righteousness. And number two, you've got to cooperate with the Spirit's effort to renew your mind every day. Now let me start with the mind, because a change of behavior always starts with a change of mind. How you think is how you behave. Solomon says so in the book of Proverbs. He says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Most of you have been to your doctor, and he would tell you something like this. What you eat is ultimately what you are. And we know that. We eat garbage for a long season of time. You go on vacation and you eat nothing but processed food, you kind of feel it by the end of vacation, right? Unless you're a teenager and they can eat pizza and Red Bull at midnight and not even lose sleep because of it. But most of us, we know that's true. Spiritually speaking, though, how you think is what you are. 
And Paul confirms that when he described the lifestyle of the Gentiles in verses 17 through 19, which we already read. How did he start by describing them? He started with their mind. He started by saying, here's the lifestyle of somebody that's lost. They are that their mind is vanity, meaningless thoughts. And then he gets down to verse 19 and he describes their behavior. And so he's saying this, the lost behave the way they do because of the way they think. And the same is true with the saved believer, the child of God. You behave the way you do because of the way you think. And so if we are to change our lifestyle, we have to cooperate with the spirit of God in us who wants to renew our mind every day. What does renew mean? Well, consider the word re new to make new again. It's what Jenny and I are doing with our house. We bought this house several months ago and it was at one time new in 1969. It was new. Did you know there was a 1969 young people? It was new. But God bless them. They didn't do anything to that house. And so we got to go in and make the whole thing new again. Like we're stripping down walls and, and from the crown down that the house is going to be almost brand new again. And that's what the Holy Spirit of God wants to do in your brain every single day. He wants to tear down the old thoughts and he wants to make them new again in your mind. How does he do that? Here's how he does that. Through the word of God. And as you look at the word of God, the revelation of God to mankind, the spirit of God takes that. And it's like his tools, his screwdrivers and his hammers and his crowbars. And his paint rollers. And he totally renovates your mind. And isn't that necessary to do on a daily basis? Why is that so? Because in a matter of minutes, our mind can go to a place that isn't consistent with somebody that's living a life for Christ. Come on now, all it takes is, is one, one minute watching the news channel. One social media post. One text message. One conversation. You don't even have to talk. You, all you got to do is see one person across from Walmart at Walmart. And you're like, oh, Matt, put me in a bad state of mind. We live in a small town, right? You, 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 you cross paths with that person. All you got to do is cross their way on Main Street. And your mind instantly goes to a place it shouldn't be. That's why we've got to allow the spirit every day to renew our mind, to tear down the old and bring up the new. That's the starting point of living a new lifestyle. Then he says, you got to do this. You got to put on the new man. Well, first you got to take off in verse number 22, the old man, and you got to put on the new man. Now follow this because this is, is not a passive activity. This is an active activity, but here's what you got to know doctrinally or else you're going to get all messed up. Watch this. In one sense, this process of taking off the old and putting on the new, it's actually already been done. Watch here. Christ actually removed your old life dominated by sin at the moment of salvation. Are you with me? Literally, when you accepted Christ instantaneously, you became new. Literally, he stripped away the old and he put on the new. But your salvation is only the starting point of your Christian life. There's another theological term that takes place the moment you get saved to the moment you go to heaven, and that is sanctification. And in that moment, that's when the renovation begins. You don't renovate and then become new. You get saved, then you get sanctified. Sanctification, unlike salvation, is not instantaneous, and it's not just inward. 
Sanctification is gradual and it's outward. Are you following me? And that involves some effort on your part. Putting on or taking off, then putting on. And, and if you doubt that, that it takes effort on your part, then consider why would Paul then say that we should daily put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh? Why would Paul say in Ephesians 6 that we should daily put on the armor of God so that we could stand against the wiles of the devil? Why would Jesus tell his own disciples and would-be disciples, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily to follow me? Because there is some, some, some part of the sanctifying ministry that, yes, the Spirit of God is the enabler, but you got to cooperate with that. Baptism is the perfect example of this. Most of you have been baptized or at least seen how we baptize here during a baptismal service. We have somebody walk into the water and then we ask them, do you know that you're saved? Why do we ask them that? Well, because baptism doesn't save. Baptism is only representing what has already happened inside a believer's heart. And so we make sure they're saved. If they're saved, they've already instantaneously been made new in Christ. And we signify that by telling them this. Then based on your public profession and in obedience to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize thee, my brother or sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death. That's what happened when you got saved. He buried your old man, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what happened when you got saved. Old man buried, new man is alive. Are you with me? But we don't end our baptistry service that way. Or else the baptistry would be really full really quick. If all they did was go under and up and stand there. What do I say next? That ye may walk active in newness of life. And they walk out of the baptistry so the next one can come. Here's the point. You've got salvation buried and made alive in Christ. But if at that point, you've got to cooperate with the Spirit of God to walk in newness of life. You've got to take the necessary steps, and that is taking off the old man and putting on the new. Now, that's the doctrinal agreement. You're with me. I've heard some good amens. I could use a few more this morning, but I've heard some, I've, a decent amount. You're at about a seven out of a ten, maybe a six, if I'm honest. But now we're going to get to the practical part of it. Because Paul says, okay, that's the foundation. You understand that's what we believe. But here's how it plays out. And what he's going to do in the next section is he's going to give this list of examples of what a Christian lifestyle looks like. Now, here's what I could do. I could take the next five weeks, because there's five things in this list, and I could preach a sermon on each one of these things. I could do that, and I would be okay in doing that, and many preachers are. I don't think that's the spirit of the text, though. Here's what I think Paul's doing. He's not giving us an exhaustive list. Okay, because there's more than five things that make up what a Christian lifestyle is. He's giving us some short examples in order to, to, to give us the practical side of this doctrinal argument. And so we're going to step our way through those. And here's what Paul does. He uses this analogy of clothing. Putting on your clothes. Well, you got to take off the old first. I keep getting that mixed around. And then you got to put on the new. I hope you take off old clothes. Seventh grade boys, are you listening to me right now? You are to take off old clothes once a day. Not once a week. 
I, when I was a youth pastor, I would get involved with taking junior campers to, to camp. And then we take senior campers, and they're, they're the seventh and eighth graders, and the ninth through the twelfth. And it, it, it just seems like, like the seventh graders had a hard time understanding what a shower was. And they were convinced that if it rained outside and they were outside while it was raining, they got their shower for the week. And that, that's disgusting. That's flat out wrong. And so as Christians, we're, we're trying to take off the old and put on the new. And so to make this vivid, I'm going to walk through this list and I'm going to use some young men to do it. Because I think young men, you need to understand that we take off dirty clothes and put on new clothes on a daily basis. All right, so you two, Evan and, and your buddy, you guys come up here. Come on. Isaac, you and your two com- comrades, beside you, come on, come on up here. All right. Very good. Come on up. Aren't you guys thankful you dressed with a little swag today? <laughs> there you go. Just stand side by side, guys. All right. Mike, why don't you help Brother Eli so I can concentrate on preaching this? Or maybe he can... You can distribute that. Eli's such a good staff assistant. He spent about four hours making these t-shirts. Put on, put on the bad one. All right, and then hold the new one. Yeah, go ahead and put on the bad one. It takes seventh graders a little bit of time to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, go ahead, buddy. Go ahead. Put it on, man. Let me hold this for you. You got you put you put your right hand in the right hole socket there. Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right. Good. Your mama taught you well, Evan. Oh, hold this. Hold this, bud. Hold this, bud. There you go. So Paul's going to give us a list. I want you to pay attention as they're kind of ordering this out because if we wait that long, then we'll well we'll wait till the evening service. So. Here's what he starts with in verse 25. Would you look at your Bible? Can you do that? Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Why? Because we're members one of another. All right, look up here. Here's the thing he starts with. A Christian lifestyle is marked by some, somebody who tells the truth. A lost person's lifestyle is marked by someone that habitually lies. And so Paul says that as a Christian... What you doing, man? Bro, you, you wait to put on the shirt till I tell you. You just hold it right there. Hands behind your back. Right there. Very good. Oh, Should have used girls. Most people think of lying as a little kid's sin. They equate lying with, with the kid who was told not to get in the cookie jar, but he gets in the cookie jar and he tells his mom he wasn't in the cookie jar even though cookie crumbs are on his face. That's lying, right? We think, no, 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 wait, wait a second. Adult Christians have a more polished version of lying. We taught this in the Bible classes a, a couple weeks ago and some people had a hard time understanding that they were indeed liars. But they lied just then. Because here's what we do. We don't just straight up not tell the truth. What we do is we exaggerate the truth. Right? Or we withhold a portion of the truth. We conceal the truth. Or we hide the truth because if we told all the truth, it wouldn't be convenient for us in that situation. Or we cheat on a test. Lying. We cheat on the time clock. Lying. 
We cheat on our taxes. None of you do, but lying. So, so, so we have lied. We have entered into the lifestyle of a lost person. And Paul says this, you need to put that off. You need to take that off and you need to, to put on truth telling. Why? He says, because we're members one of another. He, he equates this with the fact that, that, that if you tell the truth or if you lie, rather, you are hurting your fellow church member. You're hurting the testimony and the unity of the church. You're hurting mem other members of your family and other members of your workplace. And he says, you ought to physically every day resist the urge to lie. Take it off, Evan. Give me that shirt. Take it off, buddy. We don't need them girls seeing that six pack, bro. These kids are going to kill me up here. No, you don't take it off yet. Did I tell you to take it off? Oh, do we got it backwards? No, it's on. It's on right. Can someone give this kid a hand? Oh, man. I, I maybe should have, like, practiced this, rehearsed this a little bit. He goes on to verse 26 and verse 27. And he says, I want you to take off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Here's the point, listen. Lost people typically live a lifestyle of anger. It would be consistent with who they are on the inside. They're searching for things they don't have the answers to. They're going to, to substances to satisfy and they leave them unsatisfied. They're running to earthly things to try to fill a spiritual void. And what it does over time is it leaves them angry on the inside. Why am I never fulfilled? And so they can fly off the hook easy. They can suppress and, 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 and kind of just stay away from the crowd because they're just so angry and so bitter. But Paul says that's the character of a, of a lost person. You need to take off that urge to do what you used to do when it comes to anger. And you need to put on righteous anger. What is righteous anger? One person said it's when you get mad, but you don't cuss. No, it's, it's more than that. It's literally what Paul says. You get angry, but you don't sin. Now, now listen, we need to feel anger as Christians. If we're indifferent to injustice, then evil will prevail. In fact, I think we encourage the spread of evil and sin if we're indifferent to it. We should hate sin like God hates sin. Somebody say amen. amen. But instead, what we often do is we show sinful anger. And so what Paul gives us is three reminders of, of how we can be angry as a, as a saved person, while at the same time not acting like a lost person. He, he uses this first, don't sin. In other words, I give you permission to be passionately angry about things that grieve the heart of God, but I don't give you permission to throw a fit about it. And I don't give you permission to seek revenge like a lost person would. And I don't give you permission to go on social media and blow them up or dishonor the name of God in public. That's the first reminder. Paul says, here's another reminder. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, a lot of people like to interpret that very, very literal. Meaning this, it's okay to get angry as so long as the sun's up. But when the sun's down, I got to put away the anger. Well, then the Eskimo in the North Pole can be angry for six months. 
I want to move you to the North Pole. It's not literal. Here's what he's saying. He's using the sun as a metaphor to teach us, don't let things fester for very long. Resolve it quickly or else it'll eat your lunch. That's my translation of it. Even if it's righteous anger, it needs to be short-lived. The final reminder is this, neither give place to the devil. Because when you hang on to anger and you go to sleep angry night after night after night, here's what you're doing. You're inviting the devil into your heart for a sleepover. And you think you're just giving him a little bit of an inch, but he's going to take a mile every single time. That anger will destroy your relationships. It'll destroy your life. And so, young man, it's your turn to take off sinful anger. At some point, one of you guys got to be like Credible Hulk and just rip it off like that. That would be what's really cool. And you're going to put on. You see how this is an active activity, church? This is every day as the Spirit of God renews your mind after you get in the Word of God and teaches you that anger isn't Christ-like, that you're going to say, you know what, in my situations at work, in my situations in my own living room, in my own kitchen, I am going to make sure that at the moments in which I feel like wearing the shirt of sinful anger, I rip it off and I put on the shirt of righteous anger. He goes next and he talks about stealing. Now look at verse number 28. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Now, now historians tell us, why would he talk about stealing? Because the, the skilled tradesmen that he would have been talking to in this day, the, the day laborers, were typically hired during a seasonal time of the year. And so the societal norm was this. When it's not the season of work where you can get a wage, you've got to steal and take advantage of others in order to put bread on your table. And Paul is telling them, though that is normal in society, that is not normal of the person that knows Christ. Instead of stealing or taking advantage of others to get what you want, here's what you do. You work honestly. And you work hard. And you steward your time and your money wisely so that then you can give and help others. I, I think of it like this. Um, who said this? Uh, John Wesley said this, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. That's the Christian lifestyle. I think of it like this. You can either steal to get, you can work to get, or you can work to get so that you can give. And the third option is the Christian option, according to, to, to Paul. Paul, it, he doesn't stop with hard work. He says the Christian lifestyle and the remedy to stealing and taking advantage of others is not just working a hard day job. It is working so that you can give and be generous. Take off stealing, bro. And put on working and giving. Somebody hold the shirt down. I want him to see the six pack. All right, very good. Here's the next one. Take off corrupt talk. And put on edifying talk. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Then he gives us the why. Here's why. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. He said, put off corrupt communication. Here's what I find interesting. Look up here. I find it interesting that the word corrupt that Paul uses is the same exact word that Matthew uses two times in his gospel. In Matthew 7, he used this same word to describe corrupt fruit or rotten fruit. In Matthew 13, he used this same word to describe rotten fish. 
both of which are disgusting. They're corrupt. And are they not appropriate of sinful speech? Corrupt speech doesn't nourish you and it doesn't nourish those around you. It makes you and your relationship sour and sick. Instead, take that off. Put on edifying words, words that build up and construct, not tear down and criticize. And here's why that's important. Because specifically the sins of the tongue tend to grieve the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Now, the Holy Spirit is grieved when you do anything contrary to his nature. But Paul tied it in directly to the sins of the tongue. Meaning when you gossip and you curse and you lie and you belittle and you're sarcastically hateful. Here's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit cannot influence you in the way that the Holy Spirit needs to influence you. You are suppressing his work in your life. You're grieving his work in your life. And so take off corrupt talk and put on edifying talk. Help a brother out. Christians help each other. Let's talk about the last one. 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. I want you to look up here. I don't have time to just clean off a spot and go preaching for a long time. So listen, Christians should be the most kind and forgiving people on planet Earth. The most composed and forgiving and nice. Nice is a good word to use in 2020. Polite, considerate people in all of the world. But how many have ever had to deal with a bitter and angry, wrathful Christian? It's not consistent with who they say they are. I know that the business deal didn't go your way. I get that. I know you got ripped off. I know you got talked about. I know somebody hurt your kid. I get all of that. But there's no exception clause here. If you have the lifestyle of a Christian, which means Christ-like, then you are going to behave like Christ did whenever he was betrayed. And whenever he was taken advantage of. Whenever he was forsaken, which what did he do? Did he just quit on the cross and say, I'm done with this? He took the cross down the Via Della Rosa and died on it, even though the people he was dying for already forsook him. It's amazing. How do you do that? Well, you consider how forgiving and kind God has been to you. And when you, that's why renewing your mind's important. It starts in your mind. You think, okay, listen, because, watch this, watch this. Your capacity to forgive is completely dependent upon your comprehension of how you've been forgiven. If you don't daily comprehend the amount of kindness and forgiveness God's shown to you, then anything in your life that day is going to set you off. And, and, and people are going to have about that, that, that chance, that much of a chance with you. And one wrong decision by the boss and you're going to hold a grudge for a week. Because you have lost a comprehension of the fact that you have been forgiven of all your sins. And God has never held a grudge towards you whatsoever. But how many know that that's got to be a daily choice? So take off bitterness and wrath. Help him, Isaac. And put on kindness and forgiveness. You're the only one awkward, bro. I'm good. Now look at this. Here's what this reminds me of. Hand the button. There we go. 
Here's what this reminds me of. It reminds me of the day that Jesus came to Lazarus' grave. And he said, now by the way, Lazarus has been dead long enough to stink. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. John chapter 11. And Lazarus came forth. And here's what Jesus said when he saw Lazarus. He said, loose him of his grave clothes. Why would Jesus say that? Because Lazarus, what Lazarus was wearing was not consistent with the new life he had been given. And here's what Christians do. Too many are wearing grave clothes when they should be wearing grace clothes. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus. You've been made clean by the grace of Jesus. But so many times on a daily basis, you walk around in grave clothes like you're dead in your sin when you've been made alive in Christ. My burden to you, church, is every day put on grace clothes. What, that's truth telling. That's righteous anger. That's, that, that's working and giving. That's edifying talk. That's kindness and forgiveness. And all the other articles of clothing that come with the lifestyle of a Christian. Quit walking around like you're dead when you've been made alive in Christ. Statement. Live as you are, not as you were. That is the essence of the passage. Live as you are, not as you were. Guys, you can go down. Thank you. Give them a hand, man. Give them a hand. Now keep your, keep your clothes on. Keep your clothes on. Go down. Take your shirts. Keep your clothes on. Looks a lot better than what you're wearing anyway. Go, go on down. Forgot your coat, bro. Oh, seven graders. Hey, you guys just, you wear that to school tomorrow. All right. I'll sign it in the foyer as well. Can I just ask you a few questions as we close today? Are you saved? Did you hear me? Are you saved? Have you been made new in Christ? Well, how do I know? Have you called upon the name of the Lord to save you? I don't want you to go and examine your life by your lifestyle. That's not healthy. I want you to first ask, has there been a point where you've been made aware of the fact that you are a sinner separated from God and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross to save your soul? Can you go back to that, that place, that time, that situation? If you are saved, let me ask you this. How's your lifestyle? Are you living a life based on who you are in Christ or who you were before Christ? And Paul's already given us a list to examine our lifestyle by. How is your lying and truth telling? How is your anger, sinful or righteous? How is your work life? How is your speech? How's your kindness? How's your forgiveness? In those five areas, does your lifestyle match your life, who you are in Christ? If you have to come to this conclusion, Christian, that there are some areas in my life where, where, where I'm just inconsistent with who I say I am, then here's what you need to work on. Renew your mind every day. Remodel the thoughts by getting into God's word. And number two, take off the old, put on the new. Every single day, you got to be vigilant, putting on the armor of God, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, picking up your cross daily. The Christian life is a battle. It's not a playground. 
And so you got to suit up every day so that you can live in victory. If you agree with the word of God today, say amen. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye.